David Cullen Bain, the Dunedin man found guilty of murdering his family, appeared to go into a state of shock on hearing the guilty verdict. He started saying black hands, that they were taking them away, black hands. Do you find the accused guilty or not guilty? Not guilty. <laughs> I want to assure you, I did not kill my family. So who killed the Bain family? We might never know with mathematical certainty, but we can certainly come to some conclusions on who is the more probable killer of the Bain family out of David and Robin. Don't forget, these are the only two options. No third parties come into the equation. The answer, in my view, is inescapable. And the answer will tell us whether David Bain was cheated of compensation for being jailed for 13 years. I'm journalist Martin Van Bainen, and this is the last episode in a 10-part podcast series about the Bain family murders. On June the 20th, 1994, five members of the Bain family were shot in their home in Dunedin. Only the father, Robin Bain, who appeared to have shot the family and then himself, or his son David, the only survivor, could have been responsible. David was convicted of the murders in 1995, but acquitted after a second trial in 2009. Over the last nine episodes in this series, we've covered a lot of ground. We've looked at the Bain family and their various sad and peculiar dysfunctions. We've exposed the hard evidence against David and the lack of it against Robin. We've looked at their personalities and possible motivations. It probably won't come as much of a surprise to hear that I think David Bain shot his family on June the 20th, 1994. That was my view after covering David's second trial as a reporter in 2009, and remains my opinion after spending the last three years looking at all the evidence again. A jury may not have been satisfied of David's guilt beyond reasonable doubt in 2009, but whether he is innocent, as he claims, is quite another question. This episode looks at exactly why I think David is guilty of shooting his family. And I hasten to add, this is just my view, my opinion. People might think I've reached the position I have after struggling with two nearly equally strong and compelling options. In other words, opting for David Bain as the shooter was a close thing. Well, it hasn't been an easy exercise because of the complexity of the evidence, but in my view, the thrust of the evidence is so clear that to argue David is innocent is mostly wishful thinking and against all the natural and logical inferences from the evidence. You will recall the episodes on the hard evidence against David and Robin and how the factors pointing to Robin are mainly conjecture based on outside possibilities. The absence of evidence in some areas may be the fault of the Dunedin police investigating at the time, but it's a big jump from saying the police and scientists made mistakes to saying those failures mean David is innocent. Unfortunately, the Bain case has become more about flaws in the police investigation and scientific analysis than the evidence actually uncovered showing David is a much more likely killer of the Bain family than his father. Let's just look at the combined strength 
of the five items of hard evidence pointing to David as the shooter. These are David's bloody fingerprints on the rifle, Stephen's blood on David's clothes, the lens found in Stephen's room, David's injuries, and David hearing his sister Laniette gurgle when, if his story is correct, she should have been long dead. Each of these features of the case has difficulties and may have innocent explanations. The fingerprints may have originated from a rabbit shooting trip and the blood on David's clothes might have come from David innocently brushing against bloodied surfaces in the house. Laniette might have continued breathing after being shot in the head three times. The lens might have got into Stephen's bedroom through some other cause, etc, etc. However, the difficulty for David is that all five items of evidence exist in the first place. Then he has another major problem. Not only does David have this powerful collection of evidence directly pointing to him as the killer, but he is also incredibly unfortunate, if he is innocent, to have Robin not leave a single clear clue that he is the killer. In other words, what an amazing coincidence it would be if David is innocent that all these items have through some quirk of terrible luck combined to make him look guilty. It will always be difficult to piece together exactly what happened on that morning in Dunedin. Only David, in my view, knows the answers. David had clearly worked out a careful plan. Its main aim was to deflect suspicion from himself. He, of course, knew he would be a suspect and knew he would need to point police away from himself. It's even possible breaking his usual glasses at his music teacher's house and mentioning the premonition of something horrible happening to his family were part of the plan to put himself in the clear. The lack of glasses would have made his passage through the house in the dark more difficult, and what sort of killer would mention a premonition something terrible was going to happen to people he planned to kill a few days later? The computer switch on time may also have had a role in his plan, as did the faking the fit in his room. He went on the run earlier than usual and took great care he was seen at a particular time. Wearing gloves was also part of the master plan. I suspect, and this is only my view, that David knew exactly when Robin would be in the house and that he did shoot his father from the computer alcove, which would explain the cartridge by the chair. Where David's plan went horribly wrong was the fight with Stephen. The killings were supposed to be clinical. Stephen waking up brought the murders into stark reality. Let's imagine for a moment what would have happened if David had not had the fight with young Stephen. First, David would have remained relatively blood-free. And although he might still have needed to put some of the clothes he wore in the shootings in the washing machine, he would have had little blood, if any, on his clothes, including his socks. He would also not have left his fingerprints and blood on the rifle, and his glasses would not have been broken and no lens would have been left behind in Stephen's room. Neither would he have had any injuries to explain. Without the horrible fight with Stephen, David's composure might not have been shattered, and he might not have made the mistakes he made later in talking to the emergency call operator and the police in his various interviews. All this leads to the shattering conclusion that without the fight with Stephen, David may well have got away with murder. The defence says it can explain everything that makes David a candidate for the murders, but the list of things requiring explanation is formidable. In some ways, it's the little things which don't make sense if David is innocent. 
and which packed the most punch. To list just a few, why did David stand by Laniat's bedside, listening to her struggle to breathe and do nothing? How come the 10-shot magazine ended up so perfectly on its edge right by Robin's right hand? Why did Robin, who apparently had been made aware of Laniat's allegations and was hell-bent on killing the family, decide to go to bed with a hot water bottle? Why did David go into the lounge after discovering his mother's dead body when nobody slept there? But David's camp has a number of more difficult factors to overcome. Chief among them is this. If Robin was the killer, we have to accept a slew of implausible behaviours and actions occurred. The Bain camp maintains logic and reason cannot be applied to Robin's behaviour because he had essentially lost his mind and was driven by some primal, vindictive urge. It's reasonable to put the argument that Robin was indeed at the end of his tether and Laniat was about to expose him as a molester and that he snapped, resulting in a killing rampage. The difficulty for David's camp, however, is the fact the shootings did not appear in any way to be the work of a madman who had lost the plot. If Robin was the shooter, he made the killings look planned, precise and cold-blooded. All of his victims were supposed to be sleeping and, according to his plan, shot carefully with probably only a single shot. He also had sufficient possession of mind to handle a range of activities after the shootings before taking his own life. It appears on all the evidence that Robin spent most of the night in bed with a hot water bottle and, judging by his bladder, got up at a fairly normal time and even brought in the day's newspaper from the letterbox. He didn't get up early to make himself a cup of coffee to stay awake, to plan and scheme. He didn't appear to go to the toilet either, which would cause David problems later when people struggled to comprehend why a 58-year-old man with a full bladder could, over an hour, kill his family and prepare himself for suicide without at least at some point relieving himself. Another defence expert would be required to explain that one. The implausibilities don't stop with the bladder. For David's story to stand up, we have to accept in my view, a whole pile of them. Robin is supposed to have found the key to unlock the trigger lock on David's rifle in a little ceramic jar on David's desk in his bedroom. Only David was supposed to know where the key was, but it's quite possible Robin knew about the key or could have found it. But here is the odd thing. Instead of just grabbing the key from the ceramic container and getting on with the job, Robin neatly replaced the lid on the ceramic jar in which the key was hidden and put a hacky sack on top. If Robin was the killer, he must have put on a pair of white gloves belonging to David, even though he had his own pair. Why would Robin have felt the need to wear gloves, especially since he intended to end his own life after the killings? Surely having his prints on the rifle would have been the least of his worries. And of course, why would he use David's gloves when he had his own? The fight with Stephen should have left some nasty and obvious bruises on the frail, cadaverous Robin. The fight was vicious, and the combatants wrestled on the floor, hitting furniture and sharp edges. But Robin hardly had a mark on him. The already healing abrasions on his hands could be explained by work he had done on the spouting over the weekend. On the other hand, David had fresh injuries, including an injury on his leg, which looks very similar to an injury on Stephen's leg. And just another little thing, the curtain over the doorway into Margaret's bedroom, it didn't have a door, was closed when the police arrived. 
Robin, in his blood-splattered state after the fight with Stephen, must have come through the curtain as he was marching off to shoot his next victim. But he still took the time to neatly close the curtain again. Robin, if he was the shooter, must have decided at some stage to take his own life. He may have come to that decision before the shootings, during them, or afterwards. But instead of just putting the gun to his head and pulling the trigger after his horrific night's work, he produced yet another inconvenient bit of evidence for David to explain. He decided he would clean up and change his clothes before meeting his maker, despite knowing David could not be that far away from returning home. Remember, if David is right, Robin turned on the computer about 6.40am when David was only minutes away from home, according to his story or a version thereof. To clean up, Robin probably had to go out to the caravan to fetch other clothes. Yet he managed not to get any blood on any part of the caravan or its interior. At some stage, he must have removed his bloodied socks, his jersey soaked in blood, and his pants. But he didn't just dump them on the floor, which would have helped David's account. Instead, he took the blood-soaked and spattered garments and put them neatly in the washing basket in the downstairs laundry, ready to be sorted and put in the washing machine by David, who did the family washing. Again, it would look bad for David. By including clothes like the green jersey in the washing, it would look like he was getting rid of the evidence. David, unfortunately for him, didn't notice a thing when he picked up the blood-soaked clothes to put them in the washing machine, despite getting blood on the container of washing powder and probably putting a clear and bloody palm print on the washing machine. Robin cleaning up and getting changed might have made more sense if he had dressed in something clean and formal to meet his maker. Just a clean shirt and his best jersey would have helped David's story, some symbol of a last ritual. Instead, Robin chose a scruffy combination, comprising old blue tracksuit pants, a grey hoodie, a tattered brown jersey, a business shirt, a t-shirt and his old woolly hat. He made it look like he was dressing for the cold rather than his death. Just as an aside, I lived in Dunedin in a very cold house for about a year around 1990. I used to do exactly what Robin Bain did. On a cold morning, I would get up and put on all available clothes, have breakfast, and then brave the freezing bathroom for a shower. In any event, Robin had to decide where to shoot himself. He is supposed to have taken the rifle, still covered in blood, and gone into the lounge room, closing the door behind him. He still, according to the defence scenario, had some of his victim's blood on his hands, but managed not to get any blood on the lounge door handle. It's curious that he should feel the need to change his clothes, but not carefully wash the blood of his family from his hands. He then decided to do one last thing before ending his life. He would leave David, the one he had spared, a note saying sorry. If Robin had just written an unambiguous suicide note in his own handwriting, David would never have been suspected and no awkward questions would have been asked. Instead, Robin, according to the defence, decided to start up the computer and wait 40 seconds before he could type the message, sorry, you are the only one who deserved to stay. What did that mean? The message would continue to puzzle. And why did Robin not write, you are the only one who deserves to stay? 
using the right tense for the situation. And why would Robin use the word deserves anyway? It suggests the others had not earned their staying, unlike David, the son closest to his mother. Margaret was the one who used words like earning or deserving. And what had Stephen or Arawa done, in Robin's eyes, to not deserve to stay? At some point in the morning, the only question left for Robin was how best to shoot himself. Very interesting. Sad that so many can be influenced by one little bastard. The Commune. Free love, group therapy and a guru called Bert. What could possibly go wrong? Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for The Commune. An incredible podcast, brilliantly put together and narrated. The Commune. Free love, group therapy and a guru called Bert. What could possibly go wrong? Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for The Commune. The series is beautifully crafted and a compelling listen. A man disappears with no crime scene, no weapon and no body. How could his longtime friend be arrested and charged with murder? The Trial. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for The Trial. What about lighting? Remember the lounge light was not on and the door was shut when David returned home. That means that either Robin never turned on the light in the lounge or he turned it off before killing himself. Both very curious things to do. He was right-handed, so the most natural thing for him to do, having decided on a temple shot, was to grab the silencer by his left hand, hold it to his right temple, and pull the trigger with his right hand. Instead, he chose to pull the trigger with his left hand and hold the muzzle up to an odd part of his left temple. He tilted his head so the angle of the shot was across his brain. Again, if David is innocent, his bad luck struck again. The shell that ejected from the rifle flew through a gap in the curtains to land on the floor in the alcove. If it had just hit the curtains and remained on the lounge side of the curtains, police would have been much more convinced Robin had indeed committed suicide. But instead, the shell landed next to a chair in the alcove, supporting the scenario that David had hid in the alcove and fired from behind the curtains. And then after the final shot, Robin fell backwards, his right hand landing right beside the 10-shot magazine, standing on its narrow concave edge. If he was the shooter, Robin must have put it there before shooting himself. But again, events were conspiring against David. The fact the magazine was right beside Robin's hand made it look like David had put it there to frame his father like some sort of stage prop. Then, one of the most surprising things of all if Robin was the killer, neither his blood nor his fingerprints were found on the blood-smeared rifle. But let's ignore the implausibility of Robin shooting himself in the way David's camp suggests. Let's just look at the hard evidence against Robin. It's astounding how little evidence from the crime scene in the end connected Robin with the shootings if he was the killer. The suggestion he had his victim's blood on his hands is entirely speculative, and the evidence supporting his bloodied sock prints being in the house is tenuous at best. It's hard to see the police charging anyone on that sort of evidence. But if you add up the items pointing to David, you end up with a formidable case. 
David's camp says this is the result of biased police work, bad scientific testing, and unhappy accidents. But a much more logical conclusion, based on probabilities rather than remote possibilities, is that David is in fact the killer. David's case would be helped if he was reliably truthful and accurate, but that isn't the case, as we saw in the episode about David's trustworthiness. He misled Justice Binney about the tattoo and whether his father was going to live in the new house. He has tried to retail a fiction about his relationship to his perfect family and changed his story significantly over time. Much evidence suggests he had a controlling relationship with the sisters and a strange alliance with Margaret. If David was sort of aloof from the family, doing his own thing, why would Margaret have to warn him about trying to boss his siblings around? And why would Arawa be frightened he had a rifle? This is not a young man getting on with life, having a ball, and being unaware of the undercurrents in his family. David has tried to explain away all the inconsistencies and implausibilities, but much of David's account is just too convenient. For instance, months after the killings, he suddenly remembered hearing the raised voices while he was in bed on the night before the shootings. The chief problem for David is the period of 20 to 25 minutes he couldn't explain when he first spoke to police. An allied issue is the change in his story from the time he made his 111 phone call to the time only a few hours later when he was interviewed by the police. According to David's story, he had somehow blocked out that 20 minutes from his conscious memory by the time he was interviewed by police after the shootings. David says he was helped to recover the memories from that time in his sessions with Professor Paul Mullen starting in December 1994. By then, David knew all the evidence against him and realised he needed to come up with something to fill the missing gaps. Most people remember horrific experiences all too clearly. Extreme fear or shock do affect memory, but very few people repress the whole memory. Inaccuracies and false impressions intrude, but it's hard to imagine a person finding a brother and two sisters shot and dead and forgetting everything about it only a few hours later. Conveniently, David's new memories not only provided an explanation for the inconsistency between his versions of what happened, but also filled in the missing 20 minutes. More importantly, the memories helped to explain his injuries and why he had Stephen's blood on his clothes and socks. I can accept some people's memories of traumatic events might be faulty, but to have no memory at all of finding three of his siblings dead in horrific circumstances sounds too convenient by far in David's case. It's not as though David saw the horrific scenes and was immediately overwhelmed by trauma so that his memory went haywire. When he spoke to the emergency operator, he knew, in his words, that they were all dead. It wasn't until a few hours later that his story had changed. Even if the blocking is genuine, David still has two problems. One is that there is no way of knowing if the memories he recovered are genuine or accurate. David said he remembered seeing his mother's eyes open as she lay dead, but because of her injuries, they must have been closed. So that's at least one false memory. And second, the blocking could have been due to an amnesia caused by the trauma of shooting his family and the awful struggle with Stephen in which he had to strangle him before shooting him. The blocking theory would be more credible if David was a truthful and reliable witness, 
but there are too many indications, in my view, that David does not tell the truth. The account of former prison officer Graham Stanley, covered in an earlier episode, is very important. He caught David faking a fit not long after the shootings. This backs up what some ambulance staff experienced as they ministered to David soon after the shootings. They also thought he might be faking. How then has David been able to so consistently deny his guilt and seem sincere doing it? His approach has been very effective. If you say something often enough, some people will start to believe you, despite the evidence. Could he just be a manipulative genius and a talented actor who can fool psychiatrists and dedicated supporters? Maybe. It can't be ruled out. What is perhaps more likely is that David refuses to think about what he did in annihilating his family. He just won't go there because the truth would be too much for him to cope with. He has shown he can live with lesser fictions. David talks about the terrifying prospect of reliving the day of the shootings in Karam's book, David and Goliath. The following excerpt is read by an actor. I have blocked what I saw that day from my mind. I try to remember my family as they were in happier times. Perhaps the most terrifying prospect for David is having to face the fact he killed his family. By persuading himself he could not have killed his perfect family, and he may genuinely have no memory of doing so, or may have formed a completely false memory, David now goes through life with a new reality and a new narrative, encouraged by his supporters, who also seem unable to face the evidence. Exceptionally riveting and shocking at the same time. Gone fishing. A man disappears and a woman goes to prison for 15 years for his murder, despite swearing she'd never even met him. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for Gone Fishing. Hi, Adam Dudding here. If you're enjoying Black Hands, I think you might enjoy another stuff podcast, The Commune, a gripping 12-part documentary series that unravels the secrets of Centrepoint, the notorious free love commune led by Bert Potter. You've already been welcome to Centrepoint. Some of you have had a good look around. The commune doesn't just tell the black and white story. It delves into the shades of grey. He was into sex every day. Discover the nuanced, complex tales of former residents and those touched by Centrepoint's controversial legacy. There was a lot of things like that where you'd think, what the f***? The Commune podcast from Stuff. Listen today at stuff.co.nz slash the commune or wherever you listen to podcasts. One of the most confounding aspects of the Bain case is why people are prepared to vouch for David's innocence despite not knowing the case well or understanding its many elements. Or if they do, they can dismiss and write off all the evidence against their man. I wondered if we actually have an anti-police culture in New Zealand. But I don't think that's true. It could be that David fits the underdog stereotype and everyone wants the underdog to overcome. Maybe having a former All Black like Joe Caram in his corner makes all the difference. Maybe there is something so compellingly innocent about the nerdy David and his fine voice that people just need to believe he could not be a mass murderer. The pro-David feeling may well have something to do with the fact he seems so normal, a normal young man from a difficult yet middle-class family. If we accept such a normal young man can one night turn into a mass murderer, we have to address the uncomfortable question, 
of what anybody is capable of. Many will still ask what possible motive could David have had for killing his family. His life was ahead of him and things were starting to look brighter. But David's life at the time of the shooting was complicated and fraught. Vital starting points in understanding David as a 22-year-old are his unhealthy closeness to his devil-seeing mother, his unnatural competition with his father, his desire to control the family, and his adoption of the bizarre refuge dream in which the family would be together again, but without Robin. After that, much of it becomes speculation. Maybe at the family meeting he called on the Sunday night before the shootings, David saw the terrible prospect of Laniette blowing his artificial but perfect family ideal to pieces. He had planned a murder or murders for a long time, and this might have been the trigger. Maybe he felt trapped by the unrelenting responsibility for a needy family which refused to bend to his will. Maybe after a lifetime of simmering resentment, frustration, mockery and setbacks, the fight with Robin over the chainsaw was the trigger that flicked the switch on his well-thought-out plan to murder. Maybe more failure was just around the corner, both at university and in his relationship. Maybe Margaret had decided to reconcile with Robin and pricked the refuge bubble herself. Maybe Margaret's beliefs and attitudes were interpreted by David as her wish for the destruction of the family and that those Satan-infested banes were better off dead. Maybe the only thought in David's mind was doing what he had to do. We will never know, and maybe David doesn't really know either. The implications, if I am right, are admittedly pretty bleak. It means David lied on that phone call, that he was in fact acting, and that he has lied to his supporters and has lied to us and maybe to himself. Tragically, supporters like Joe Karam have spent a good part of their lives trying, in my view, to defend someone they genuinely think is innocent, but who, in fact, is a killer, however nice he might be. Unfortunately, a case like this will always have loose ends. Real life is not like a crime novel, and complex criminal cases always leave some perplexing questions. Although I have no doubt David killed his family, I have no wish to see him back behind bars. He has spent 13 years in prison, and whatever he was like as a 22-year-old, he is now a different person, and probably no danger to anyone. He should be allowed to get on with his life, and I sincerely hope he and his family will be left alone. But neither should he go through life as the victim of a great injustice. Five people are dead. In my view, he killed them. A colossal lie has been perpetrated. This could have been prevented if the police and Crown scientists had been more thorough and careful, but they did enough to mount a formidable case against David Bain. Their mistakes, however, left gaps and uncertainties that could be exploited on David's behalf. David is not stupid. He must appreciate the strength of the evidence against him. But he says, I was quite satisfied with my own innocence. What I hope we have shown in this podcast series is that we, the New Zealand public, have every reason not to be satisfied with David's innocence. And no matter how many times he pleads his innocence, and how often his supporters tell us what a nice guy he is, that doesn't change what, in my view, is the truth. 
The Bain family are buried together in a grave in the East Tyree Cemetery in Mosgiel, which is full of good Scottish names. The grave is not hard to find, and the headstone, a simple black granite affair, says nothing about how the Bain family died, except that they died tragically. This podcast series has tried to write a fuller inscription. I'm Martin Van Bainen. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a joint stuff and tandem studios production, written and presented by Martin Van Bainen, audio engineered and co-produced by Brett Robertson, and produced by Dave Dunlay and Kamala Heyman. An airliner takes off from Auckland Airport on a sightseeing trip to Antarctica. A few hours later, all 257 people on board are dead. White Silence. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for White Silence. A man disappears and a woman goes to prison for 15 years for his murder, despite swearing she'd never even met him. Gone Fishing. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for Gone Fishing.